Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, Israel and Hamas accuse each other of violating the truce agreement. Israeli forces reported battling with terrorists in the Gaza Strip on the fifth day of the temporary ceasefire. Will the prisoner hostage exchange continue as planned? Jason Perry brings us the latest. 99-year-old former President Jimmy Carter making a rare public appearance as he honors his late wife Rosalind Carter. What their family members are sharing as President Biden pays his tribute. Iris Tao reports. Hunter Biden says he wants to testify for the public to see as part of the House Oversight Committee's investigation into the Biden family. But what does the Oversight Committee have to say? Melina Weiskup in D.C. Nikki Haley's presidential campaign gets a huge endorsement. The support could give the former South Carolina governor more manpower on the ground in primary states. Democrats pushing for public health solutions at a hearing today on the gun violence crisis. But is it a health epidemic or a criminal justice problem? Arlene Richards with the highlights. A daring rescue in the Himalayas, 41 workers trapped for 17 days are finally brought to safety. We have the details of this extraordinary operation. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas terrorists was set to end last night, but it was extended by two days, giving family members more hope that their loved ones will be released. But now both sides are accusing the other of violating the agreement. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Day five of the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas terrorists did not go exactly as planned. Israel Defense Forces reported that three explosive devices blew up near Israeli troops in two different locations in the northern Gaza Strip. At one of the locations, terrorists also opened fire on the Israeli troops who returned fire. The IDF did not provide specifics, but reported a number of Israeli soldiers were slightly injured during the incidents. At the same time, Hamas accused Israeli forces of violating the truce agreement. But after the fighting settled down, the hostage prisoner exchange continued on as planned. On Tuesday, more hostages were released from Hamas captivity and they were seen approaching the Rafah crossing, Gaza's border with Egypt. Ten female Israeli hostages ages 17 to 84 were released. Three of them have fathers who are still being held captive by Hamas. Two foreign nationals were also released. And Israel appears to have kept up its side of the deal. A Red Cross bus was seen pulling into an Israeli military prison on Tuesday in the West Bank and later released 30 Palestinian prisoners. It's like the Schindler list. We are waiting to see who's going to survive, who's not. And for those whose family members are not on the list, it's a difficult burden to bear. And unfortunately, we're speaking about uh, my cousin Shiri and the two little kids. Ariel is only four years old. 
And Kfir is now about 10 and a half months old. And this Israeli woman shared how her life was forever changed after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. I was a mother in the Friday and in Saturday night I didn't have children. Her son was killed and her only other child, her daughter, was kidnapped and remains in Hamas captivity. And her daughter's name was also not on the list of hostages released on Tuesday. We called her puppy in the family. So, puppy, we love you. We're waiting for you every day. And we hope you're okay. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to bring all the hostages back without exception. Israel has said they're willing to keep extending the ceasefire as long as 10 hostages are released each day. Jason Perry, NTD News. Elon Musk has agreed to operate Starlink in Gaza only with Israel's approval. Israeli officials say the Starlink satellite units can only be operated in Israel with the approval of the Israeli Ministry of Communications, including the Gaza Strip. In late October, Musk said that Starlink would support connectivity to internationally recognized aid organizations in Gaza. That's after the besieged territory suffered a loss of internet service. Honoring Rosalind Carter, former President Jimmy Carter, coming out of hospice care to send off his late wife of 77 years at a memorial service attended by both past and present United States presidents. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. At a Tuesday service in Atlanta, former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died earlier this month at the age of 96, is honored by family, loved ones and dignitaries, including President Joe Biden, former President Bill Clinton and all five living First Ladies, Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush, Michelle Obama and Melania Trump. Also among them, her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, who's 99 and receiving hospice care at home. The two were married for 77 years, the longest marriage of any first couple in U.S. history, both building a lasting legacy outside the White House through their humanitarian work. Their daughter struggling through tears while reading a letter President Carter wrote to his wife 75 years ago. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow, Jimmy. And their grandsons saying Rosalind was always his grandmother first. And she was like everyone else's grandmother in a lot of ways. Almost all of her recipes call for mayonnaise, for example. <laughs> President Biden's relationship with the Carters spans decades, back to when then-Senator Biden endorsed Carter for president in 1976. Biden said earlier this year that President Carter has asked him to deliver his eulogy. While President Biden did not speak at the service, he said in a statement that Rosalind Carter walked her own path, inspiring a nation and the world along the way. A private funeral is slated for Wednesday. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. We have updates on the House Oversight Committee's probe into the Biden family. Hunter Biden's lawyer is now pushing to have lawmakers probe the president's son in a public setting instead of a closed-door session. NTD's Melina Weisskopf joins us from Capitol Hill with more. 
The reason why Hunter Biden's legal team is now offering to have him come publicly testify before the House Oversight Committee is because they simply do not trust this Republican-led committee. In a statement sent to the committee today in a response to that subpoena of Hunter Biden, his lawyer, Abe Lowell, accused the committee of carrying out a baseless investigation, which he says the American people should see on full display for themselves. Furthermore, he also accused the committee of taking advantage of closed-door opportunities to then manipulate evidence before it is displayed before the public. Now, keep in mind, this is the initial response from Hunter Biden's legal team in a, a response to the subpoena that requires him to come here to Congress to answer that subpoena by December 13th. But it's not looking like Hunter Biden's legal team will get their way here. That's because chairman of the committee, James Comer, already responded in a statement on X, accusing the Biden legal team of trying to play by their own rules here. Also, they said that he's still compelled to come testify under the conditions of the subpoena in its current form. They also left the door open for Hunter Biden to come publicly testify after this closed door portion is over with. They also hinted at the reason why, and that is this is the process that all other witnesses have had to follow, including those witnesses that were compelled to come testify before the January 6th select committee. Now, keep in mind, this is only one subpoena to one Biden family member. There are a long list of others, including the president's brother, James Biden, who's asked to come for an interview next week on December 6th. Now, Melina, you've also been following the progress of an aid package for Ukraine and Israel. Is there any progress there? Where are lawmakers on this issue? Well, right now there is a bipartisan group of senators trying to work out a deal on border security provisions that would be lumped together with Ukraine aid as a way to shore up more Republican support for it. But today when we heard from Senate leader Chuck Schumer, he did not sound very optimistic about the progress of these talks, saying that this is the goal to reach this agreement. But even if these talks don't come to fruition, Schumer says he's going to push ahead with that entire aid package from the president that includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, the Indo-Pacific, and the border, whether or not those border, those bipartisan border negotiations are in it. Here's Schumer. Democrats are working to have a good faith conversation with Republicans on what both sides can agree on the border. But we're going to have to pass the uh, four bills, very important for America. And as I said, I'm going to put them on the floor next week. As for the House's side, well, Speaker Mike Johnson says that he's confident that a Ukraine aid package could pass the House, but it's incumbent on having border security provisions in it. So the pressure is really on this bipartisan group of senators to come to an agreement. Otherwise, I really don't know how both chambers can come together on Ukraine aid, let alone Israel aid, which the House has already passed its own version of, but the Senate has rejected because of spending cuts. Reporting from Capitol Hill, back to you. And in the second half of the show, we'll take a closer look at the upcoming testimony with investigative journalist Jeff Carlson, who's reported extensively on Hunter Biden. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Turning now to former President Trump's legal battles, he plans to take the stand in his own defense in the New York civil fraud trial. Trump's attorneys made the announcement yesterday. The former president is scheduled to take the stand as the defense's last witness. That's on December 11th. Before that, his son Eric is set to take the stand on December 6th. Also in the case, Trump's attorneys are arguing that the former president isn't responsible for threats made against a law clerk of the judge. The clerk has received hundreds of threatening messages. Trump's attorneys say he should be allowed to speak about her and others. They say a gag order would be unconstitutional and the judge can't curtail his speech simply because people may react to things he says.
Nikki Haley has picked up a significant endorsement in the Republican presidential primary. Americans for Prosperity is formally putting their support behind her campaign today. With backing from the billionaire Koch brothers, the political advocacy group is promising to help Haley defeat former President Donald Trump. A Trump campaign spokesman called the campaign funding shady money. Haley said she was honored to have the group's endorsement. The nonprofit will commit its network and funds to her campaign. The support could give the former South Carolina governor more manpower on the ground in primary states. A spokesman for candidate Ron DeSantis suggested the endorsement would help Trump get the nomination. Since the summer, Americans for Prosperity has communicated with 6 million primary voters. The organization will invest in strategic advertising, mailers and voter contacts. Americans for Prosperity has a network of thousands of conservative activists to support the effort. The recent spike in gun crimes, doctors, legal experts and former government officials testified on causes and solutions today. But some on the panel are frustrated by Congress's lack of action. NTD's Arlene Richards joins us now with more on the hearing. Collecting data, identifying trends, developing strategies to prevent harm, reducing risk, sharing these practices, this is how you combat an epidemic. Senator Dick Durbin kicking off yet another hearing on gun violence, calling it a public health crisis, touting the accomplishments in Congress to combat gun violence. Last year, Congress passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It included $250 million in funding for community violence intervention and $250 million for states to provide comprehensive community mental health services. But one panelist said this is not the first time she has testified at a gun violence hearing. To be completely honest, I don't have much to say that's different from what I've said in my previous testimonies. She said prior hearings had different titles, but the root of the problem hasn't changed. Put aside, too, that the public health lens is not particularly useful for understanding and addressing a problem that stems at its core, not so much from a lack of insight into how violence affects health as from a lack of adequately enforcing criminal laws and utilizing existing mental health frameworks. She believes this is another attempt to justify gun control measures. Durbin pushed back. This, to me, is a fundamental issue, and it is a public health issue. It involves not hairstyles, it involves death, death by gunshot. And it's going on in America every single damn day. I was a federal prosecutor. A former associate deputy attorney general said during his 33-year tenure at the Department of Justice, Congress passed bipartisan legislation that put criminals in prison. He attributes the current spike in violent crime to a major causal event. First, DOJ policy handcuffing federal prosecutors, beginning with the Attorney General Holder's memo in 2010 and now followed up by Attorney General Garland's memo to federal prosecutors. Federal prosecutors have been ordered not to charge offenders, especially drug traffickers, with the most serious crimes they commit. A doctor on the panel said violent criminals should be forgiven. If one of these young doctors sitting behind you, God forbid, walks out on the streets of Washington, D.C. and is raped or sodomized, you don't think the rapist should be judged? I don't think it should be terminal. It shouldn't be for the rest of their lives. 
Democrats and other physician panelists pushed for taking guns out of the hands of people with mental health problems rather than locking them up. Durbin closed the hearing by stating that he will continue to hold hearings on this topic as long as it is a threat to America. Arlene Richards, NTD News. An incredible rescue in the Indian Himalayas marks the end of a challenging and intense rescue operation for a group of mine workers. All 41 workers trapped inside a collapsed tunnel in the Indian Himalayas have been rescued. It took 17 days of drilling through rock, concrete and earth to reach them. The men were stuck in a three-mile tunnel in the mountainous region since it caved in on November 12th. Investigators are still figuring out what caused the cave-in, but the region is prone to landslides, earthquakes and floods. Coming up, another chapter in the fall of Alec Murdoch. The disgraced attorney and convicted murderer was sentenced again today, this time for cheating people out of millions of dollars. How many years did he get? Chinese fashion firm Xi'an is planning to woo U.S. investors with an IPO. Will allegations of forced labor in China and intellectual property theft stand in its way? Looking at Mao Zedong's magic weapon for the CCP's success, today lawmakers showed how the Chinese Communist Party influences the U.S. using an old-school method. Arian Pazdarp tells us what we need to know. Next year's Senate elections could be tough for Democrats. We take a look at which seats are most likely to flip. And the youngest county GOP treasurer in California now running for the state assembly. Why does he think more young people should run for office? We'll find out after the break. Welcome back. He's been sentenced again. Disgraced South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch was handed another 27 years in prison today, this time for nearly two dozen state financial crimes. Prosecutors say he defrauded his law firm and other victims of millions of dollars. He pleaded guilty to those charges earlier this month. One notable case involved his longtime housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, who allegedly died from a fall. After reportedly convincing the family to file an insurance claim, Murdoch received a $4 million payout as a result of her death. Meanwhile, Satterfield's sons never saw a dime. Murdoch had to give that money back after he was sued by the family. Murdoch is currently serving two life sentences for the murder of his wife and son at his South Carolina estate. He appealed that case and is also seeking a new trial, claiming a court clerk tampered with the jury. The clerk has denied the allegation. Extremely popular Chinese fashion firm Xi'an is seeking a U.S. IPO. American investors could pump billions of dollars into the firm, despite allegations of forced labor and intellectual property theft. Entity's Emma Xi has more. Chinese fast fashion giant Xi'an is seeking an IPO in the United States. The firm is extremely popular in the U.S., where it's seeking to raise billions of investment dollars. It's interesting that they're trying to grow so quickly, especially when they have so many uh, PR considerations and, and problems that they still have to address. Attorney John Conway specializes in intellectual property issues. 
He says Xi'an faces allegations of forced labor in its supply chain, which Xi'an has denied. It's also reportedly facing over 50 intellectual property infringement lawsuits. They are notorious for ripping off independent artists. They take their patterns and, you, and turn around and use them in their fast fashion without recompense. And I know there are several lawsuits with that. They add up quickly. They could stop production on, on some things. Uh, it will be a drain on their income. Legal fees. Conway says Sheehan also has a PR problem. Companies may not want to work with a firm that has such a reputation. We decided to not work with them and decline the opportunity. They were really eager to get Sterling Forever to sign up and do business with Sheehan. Um, they wanted our product on their site um, and they wanted to move fast. It was it was very fast moving. Let's get this done. Can we sign today? Kind of conversations. Mike Cook is the founder of Sterling Forever, a luxury goods retailer. He says Sheehan reached out to him back in July. They went through rounds upon rounds of conversations to see if they could partner up. Cook ultimately decided his core values didn't align with Sheehan's. Sheehan's got a bad reputation on the street, and I don't think that's going to play out favorably for them. Despite the reputation, Sheehan is extremely popular. It was the top research brand in over 113 countries last year. Sheehan reportedly uses a propriety algorithm that searches the web to discover what people find fashionable, and then uses this data to create designs on inexpensive clothes. The firm has disrupted the entire fashion industry with its $5 skirts and $9 jeans. Emma Shi, NTD News. China's malign influence in the U.S. and around the globe. The CCP infiltrates the U.S. using something Mao Zedong called a magic weapon for success. Today, U.S. lawmakers detailed how this evil specter operates. NTD's Arian Postar takes a closer look. China's United Front Work Department pushes the CCP's evil ideology in the U.S. and around the globe. On Tuesday, the Select Committee on the CCP published a bipartisan memo saying Chinese dictator Mao Zedong described United Front Work as a magic weapon for the party's success. The CCP used it during the 1960s in its cultural revolution, which killed tens of millions of people. United Front Work contains activities that aim to pressure, threaten and attack individuals, companies, governments and more, so that they align with CCP interests. Nowadays, these activities even take place in the United States. Earlier this year, multiple pro-China protesters interrupted a congressional hearing that focused on the CCP's United Front work. I think these eruptions are indicative uh, of really the effect that the United Front Work Department has had. They, they reinforce, I think, the idea that America is the problem in the world. And only if America disengages, or in this case, becomes more passive, uh, that things will get better. Another example of United Front work in the U.S. are alleged Chinese police stations, which actually serve as spy posts for the CCP, like the one in Manhattan that made headlines earlier this year. Another example of United Front work in the U.S. took place earlier this year, when Taiwan's president visited the United States. The CCP told organizations in California and in New York to go protest Taiwan's leader during her visit. Now, of course, people have the right to protest. But what if tensions between China and the U.S. keep rising? What if a war breaks out? It's not clear how the CCP might use its outposts in the United States in such a scenario. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Now for a quick preview of the general elections next year, which Senate seats are most likely to flip? 
Democrats face an uphill battle to hold on to their majority in the Senate. In the 2024 elections, these five Senate seats are most likely to flip. First up, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's seat in West Virginia. Manchin announced this month he's not running for re-election. This means his seat is almost guaranteed to go to Republicans in the heavily red state. In Montana, Republicans are seeking to oust Democratic Senator John Tester. Tester is running for re-election in a state that former President Trump carried by 16 points. In Ohio, Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown is trying to secure a fourth term. The past decade has seen Ohio transform from a swing state to a reliably Republican state. And in Arizona, independent Senator Kirsten Sinema hasn't announced her run for re-election. But if she does, she will face a three-way battle against both the GOP and the Democratic Party. And lastly, in Pennsylvania, Democratic Senator Bob Casey will also face tough re-election in a state that saw razor-thin margins in recent elections. California's youngest county GOP treasurer, a 20-year-old student at UC Berkeley, is also running for the state assembly. Utkarsh Jane shared with NTD's David Lamb why he thinks today's younger generation should run for office. Utkarsh Jane, you're the youngest treasurer for the county GOP. Welcome to the show. I wanted to ask you, what made you decide to run for this position? What I notice, you know, within going to Berkeley and being a student and interacting with my peers on a daily basis is that um, many of my friends and people around them are lacking purpose in their life. And they're trying to find a movement to support or some kind of cause that they can be a part of so that they can get meaning and, and do something for, you know, their community or their country. Um, and that's what I wanted to do, too. But um, the difference here is that I want to take that mindset of using, you know, things like climate change and other social and political causes out of the mind of, of these students and bring them to something that is, provides more meaning, um, not just to their families, but to their neighbors and, and to the rest of the peers. And you're running against um, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. That's correct. Um, yeah, what, what do you have going for you? Well, I have a good support system. I think um, any campaign needs not just money, but it needs a volunteer system. It needs people that will support you every, every, at every step. What I hope to do through my run is inspire more people like me and, and my age to run for these offices, offices now, you know, in city council, school boards, whatever it may be. Um, but the important part is that they get involved and they run for these seats. Um, because we're going to be the next leaders of, of in the next 15, 20 years, right? There's a survey from the Public uh, Policy Institute of California that says, mm -hmm. you know, seven out of 10 Californians think that their children yeah. will be financially worse off than the parents, um, you know, as, as a student growing yeah. up here. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? No, I mean, that frightened me. That frightens me. And that's why I'm running for the seat. You know, people my age and, and my generation are not going to have these opportunities down the line. They won't be able to afford a home. They won't be able to raise a family um, with adequate savings and whatnot. Um, and, you know, for me as a college student, education is one of my prime issues. I mean, I care about making sure that we can prepare the next generation with the skills and the knowledge that they need to be successful in whatever job or, or position they are in. So the fact that California being this big tech hub and you know the leading state, as many have said, of the country, um, to see them fall so down the ladder is disappointing. I think that's because of leadership in Sacramento and what their priorities are. I'm Alameda County Treasurer, thanks for your time. Thank you, David. 
Coming up, what do we make of the fact that Hunter Biden is agreeing to testify before Congress? And an investigative journalist walks us through the probe. Is the Biden administration pushing a misleading narrative on the U.S. economy? The president of Brownstone Institute says we are in a silent depression. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Israel and Hamas accused each other of violating ceasefire agreements on day five of the truce. After the fighting settled down, the hostage prisoner exchange continued as planned. A memorial service for former First Lady Rosalind Carter was held in Atlanta, Georgia. Her husband, former President Jimmy Carter and President Biden were among those who attended the ceremony. Hunter Biden has agreed to testify publicly before the House Oversight Committee, but not to a closed-door meeting as the panel had requested. It comes as part of the House probe into his family business dealings. The Americans for Prosperity Group is endorsing former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for president. It's an influential political advocacy group backed by the Koch brothers. Disgraced former South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch was sentenced again for state financial crimes. He got another 27 years in prison while currently serving two life sentences. Hunter Biden agreeing to testify publicly before Congress for the probe into his family business dealings. How significant is this move and what can we expect to find out from the probe? Joining us now to delve into the issues, we have Jeff Carlson, investigative journalist and co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. To begin, Hunter Biden has agreed to testify before Congress. This is in the investigation into his father, President Biden's family business dealings. How big of a deal is this and why is he responding now? Well, it's potentially a very big deal. Um, it, it's He's one of a number of subpoenas that were sent out. But what we're seeing right now is actually gamesmanship playing out. So the subpoena for Hunter Biden was for him to appear behind closed doors for a deposition. And this sudden offer by their lawyers and the way that they're framing it, it's really a PR campaign. They're trying to avoid that. What they want to do is they want to appear in a public forum, essentially make a circus out of it, but there's also another more important reason that lies behind this. So James Comer, when he sent the uh, subpoena out to Hunter Biden, he didn't just send it out to Hunter Biden. He sent, it, sent subpoenas out to a number of individuals, including Hunter's uh, art, art gallery dealer, uh, the purchaser of his art, uh, some other business associates. And most importantly, they sent a subpoena to the guy by the name of Eric Schwerin. Now, I don't know how many people have or have not heard of him, but he's probably, not probably, he's the most important person in this whole group of subpoenas. And the reason for this is he served as the financial person for the Biden family, not just for Hunter Biden, but for the larger Biden family um, and handled their finances effectively from 2009 until, well, at least the end of 2017. And his his work for the Biden spanned all of the actions that took place with the Biden family in China, in Ukraine, in Romania. He's privy to all of these details. 
And it's, it's his testimony, his pending deposition, that is what Hunter, is, Hunter and his lawyers are really worried about. Eric Schwerin is supposed to come in after Hunter Biden on the 19th. Hunter, I believe, is set up for December 13th. And the fact that Schwerin's going to be appearing, that is the reason why Hunter wants to have a public appearance as opposed to a private one where nobody can see what he says. That's what's really going on in the larger scheme of things here. I want to expand on that last point. What is the benefit of having Hunter Biden's public testimony versus private? Is it so that Shore knows what's being said? What is the benefit here? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the standard in any investigation is to go ahead and interview people one at a time out of the side of the other party and then contrast those statements with the other. Um, and there's there's a twofold benefit to the Bidens to having Hunter testify publicly. One, of course, everybody gets to see, most particularly Eric Schwerin, gets to hear exactly what he said. And two, you have the Democrats will have a chance to really kind of, you know, effectively make a circus out of his testimony, pollute it, make it very difficult to get any facts straight. So in my eyes, it's it's for a twofold purpose. One, to make sure that everything that's said is public and everybody can see it. Schwerin can see it. His lawyers can see it. They can prepare for it. They know what they can and can't say. And also just simply to muddy what Hunter can say. Interrupt, cause chaos, make it a circus. Don't allow facts to be fully established. So that, in my mind, that's what's going on here. And I think the fact that they're engaging in this tactic um, helps to highlight how worried they actually may be. They're not making this offer to testify publicly out of the goodness of their heart. On that note, then, how important is Schwerin's testimony to this whole case? What could we find out from it? Well, you know, I think that we could find everything. The question is, what does Schwerin say? Does he take the fifth? So we're not going to know the answer to that till he comes in. But as I mentioned at the outset, he's really a key linchpin. He knows every bit of information. To give you an example, um, in 2017, he responded to Hunter and told him, hey, you forgot to declare your income from being on the uh, board of directors at Burisma. And here's the amount that you need to record. And then he continued to break down everything that Hunter had made in the prior three years before that, including 2015, where he broke his income into more detail than, frankly, we'd seen at the time. So Schwerin knows everything. He knows where the money came from. Um, Eric Schwerin's a guy that helped to craft a response with, with the Biden VP White House uh, to disclose when when it was first discovered that Hunter was on the board of Burisma. Eric Schwerin was the one who was working with the White House to craft the White House's response to the disclosure of that information. So he's that kind of a person. He's involved in everything. Wow. And we are heading into a presidential election. President Biden is seeking re-election. Given Hunter Biden's upcoming testimony and these other depositions, how likely are we to see a public perception of the Bidens change because of this? Well, I, you know, I think it's been changing. Uh, I think if you look at the polls, I think most people think that Biden did something nefarious. This will only add to that. There's always going to be that core group of people that are going to be uh, you know, that are going to refuse to believe. Um, as much as anything, this is establishing pushback on the Biden White House that hasn't been done to this point. Took a, took a new Speaker of the House to get us here, but, you know, so be it. This is where we are. What do you see as the next step in this case, whether it's this testimony or more info on the depositions? Well, you know, we, we need to continue to follow the money. 
Um, that's the biggest issue. We've kind of, you know, we've got a loose framework of shell companies that affiliate with Biden. And as Joe Biden has cockily said, you know, where's the money? Well, we've, we've gone a long way to showing where that money is. And we can show a number of different paths. But we need to continue to really break apart all the money flows that were going through those 20 shell companies. Um, and, you know, personally, I'd like to revisit something that there was some money laundering allegations that were made, uh, you know, back at, um, at Hunter Biden's time at Burisma. I'd like to see those explored. But most importantly, it's his pathways through the shell companies. Jeff Carlson, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Is the U.S. economy really as good as the Biden administration says it is? Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, joins us to explain why he believes we are already in a silent depression. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Sure, it's a pleasure. You have an article out titled, Misinformation Police Come for the Economists. Tell us about it. Well, it's a very strange article in the Washington Post by Taylor Lorenz. I think she has some fame in the journalistic world, you know, hard progressive liberal. But anyway, she's reporting on some guy who said that his McDonald's meal cost $16. She said, she said, well, that's misinformation. And she went on to say that a lot of people think the economy is not going well. That's wrong. The Biden administration correctly points out that we're doing really well. And unfortunately, read on social media that, you know, people are having to move out of their apartments, move back home with their, their parents, that, uh, Real income's declining, that people are having a hard time, that we're in a silent depression. And then she goes on to quote some unnamed economists. Actually, the article doesn't name any economists, and says that this is dangerous misinformation and, and needs to be stopped, which is why the White House, she says, is working with social media companies to throttle, deboost, and otherwise censor uh, negative opinions on the economic environment. So the Biden administration is, is asking us to trust them and not the evidence of our senses. On that note, is the economy as good as the White House says? How can we tell what it is if every single platform is saying one message? Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, there's a major problem th that the data agencies have become highly politicized. So they're burying the bad news deep in the data and then sending out press releases with all the good news. So it means that every time there's a new report, whether it's the producer price index, consumer price index, the jobs report, uh, the GDP, you have to look really deeply to find out that things are not rosy, things are not good, that uh, credit card debt is extremely high, real income comes down. The dollar's lost about 18 cents of value about since January 2020. And it's caused enormous suffering among a very large cohort of the population. The American middle class is basically disappearing. You can find this in, that, in the data, but you're not going to see it in the press releases. Uh, the Biden administration is broadcasting a different message, all focused on the unemployment rate, for example, without, without mentioning the fact that millions of people have left the job market. It's actually probably closer to 7% once you include those people. So there's a lot of data manipulation going on to make us believe that we're living in a prosperous, growing economy, even though you ask anybody in the streets what they think, and they'll tell you that it's the worst economic times of our lives. And you do mention at the end of your article, quote, if the White House gets its way, no one will ever read the following. We are in a silent depression. How is this becoming a silent depression? Well, you know, I've written about this a lot for the Epoch Times. I personally don't believe we ever really went 
through a recovery after March 2020 after lockdowns. It seems like the the whatever growth there has been has been mostly uh, due to government spending, which isn't really growth at all. And that otherwise, it's just within an era term of being a long-running recession. So this line, silent depression, you know, I wondered when I read that. Okay, this article claims this misinformation. I'm pretty sure that's what I wrote in, in the Epoch Times, so they're probably talking about me, <laughs> actually. And uh, it is a silent depression. Um, growth is, is terrible. Uh, the, the, we still are missing millions from the labor rolls, and real income is not up. We haven't recovered from lockdowns, and there's a great deal of economic insecurity to match learning losses, ill health, and le less and less economic opportunity all the way around. So it's it's uh, these are very tough economic times. The White House keeps claiming they're going to soft land. Uh, uh, off this recovery, but there's nothing to land. The plane never took off in the first place. That's that's the truth of the matter. It does seem we are seeing this disconnect. Well, Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for your time. Okay, such a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, the U.S. Capitol is lit up for Christmas. America is gearing up for this year's holiday season by keeping the annual tradition alive. And in the world of golf, Tiger Woods is set to make his latest return from injury later this week. NTD's Dave Martin will join us in the studio to discuss when we return. Welcome back. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. The nation's capital tonight kicking off this year's holiday season by keeping an annual tradition alive. On the west front lawn of the U.S. Capitol, onlookers are gathering to witness the Capitol Christmas tree lighting ceremony. This year's 63-foot-tall Norway spruce traveled all the way from the Alina Mountains of West Virginia and has been waiting in D.C. since November 17th. A strong gust of wind knocked the tree over this afternoon, but the National Park Service managed to lift the tree upright again before the lighting ceremony. This tradition has been around since 1967. And each year, Congress welcomes a different tree from a different national forest across the country. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, tonight in the NBA, the league resumes its in-season tournament. Now, one of the early surprises is that Denver, the reigning champs, has actually been eliminated. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, if you blink, you'll miss the group stage. It's only four games long, you know. Meanwhile, they have a very good record on the season. I believe they're 12-6. and six. And these games, they count towards their regular season record. It's just such a very quick tournament. You know, eight, only eight of the league's 30 teams will qualify for the quarterfinals next week. And only two of those have been decided. The rest will get sorted out tonight. Amazingly, the Lakers are one of those two teams who've already, already qualified. They've gone 4-0. Yet the regular season mark would only get them the, like the last spot in the playoffs, you know, so go figure. But I think it'll be interesting to see how far the winner of this tournament actually advances in this season's playoffs where each round is best of seven. Now, speaking of the Lakers, LeBron James hit another milestone last night, becoming the league's all-time leader in minutes played. Is there any consensus on whether he's passed Michael Jordan as the greatest ever? No, I don't think that debate will ever end. They're slightly different players. You know, Jordan was probably the greatest scorer of all time. He won 10 scoring titles. 
he was such an intense defensive player. He even won a Defensive Player of the Year award, and he was so clutch. Now, LeBron, he's, he was maybe a little more complete. He won a scoring title. He also led the league in assists once. He was a very good rebounder. Never won a Defensive Player of the Year, but he was a finalist several times. Now, I will say this, though. Jordan's prime probably was a little bit longer than LeBron's. Now, LeBron turns 39 next month, though, and he's putting up significantly better numbers than Jordan did at the same age. Now, you could argue that Jordan was rusty after coming back from his second retirement at that time, but you could also say that LeBron has more miles on him than anybody else. So I think the debate is going to continue. Now, moving to the world of golf, Tiger Woods is set to make his return this week after missing the past seven months due to an injury. What's the expectation for him? Yeah, I don't think it's very high. I mean, for one thing, this isn't a major. This is actually his own event. It's the Hero World Challenge. It benefits his own charity, so not very competitive. Now, he says his foot and ankle pain is gone now. We'll see how his whole body holds up for 72 holes. Obviously, ever since that car accident a couple years ago where they nearly had to amputate his leg, He's had leg problems. Before that, he was having major back problems. Now, I'm sure he has his own high expectations for his own play. I think the fans, though, would just be thrilled to see him back and hopefully not limping around the golf course. And now for an update. Yesterday, we mentioned the firing of Panthers coach Frank Wright. Now, today, the team owner of David Pepper didn't set a reason for it, but he did stand by the draft decision of Bryce Young over C.J. Stroud. Did that surprise you? No, I wouldn't expect he's going to dump on his own player and say it was a mistake already six months later. I mean, obviously, he wants to have a good relationship with him. C.J. Stroud is going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year for sure. He's been tremendous. But Bryce Young is not a finished product. I mean, Peyton Manning struggled as a rookie. It, it's tough to be a quarterback in this league. Now, what's interesting is actually hearing some unsubstantiated reports that Reich actually wanted Stroud, which in that case, it seems like you know, maybe the wrong guy got fired unless the owner blames him for Young's struggles. Either way, the team was 1-10. in 10. Normally, in instances like this, what happened behind the scenes isn't actually publicly revealed, and I'm guessing this will be another one of those cases. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.